0: So tonight we're going to finish off going through the discourse on the Satipatthana Sutta. See if there are any lingering questions. Then go into another session after that. So where we last left off, we were Finishing the, the hindrances, the five aggregates, and the six sense bases, and the next list is called the seven factors of awakening. And what the uh, the Buddha was able to do is he was able to look into his mind stream and when profound events were happening, not only could he have profound profound events happening, he was also able to investigate what was happening that allowed these profound events to arise. So we practice, we practice, we practice, and that's all very good to have steady practice. But there becomes moments where our practice feels more efficient, we're seeing a little more clearly than we have, and that begins to change our underlying paradigm. We move from a world of static things into really deeply seeing the nature of arising and passing and the fluidity of experience. We see that the greatest security is to stop looking for security When you get that sort of aha, it goes from, I've heard this before, I kind of believe it, but I still find myself looking for security. And then there's this aha moment, this epiphany. And so I sometimes call these the seven factors of epiphany. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And if we want to have productive practice, not only is it good to have the hindrances subside And they don't subside through repression, they subside through knowing them, knowing what's causing them, getting skillful about preventing them, but not just fighting them. As they subside, there actually is another list that we often don't get to on week-long retreats. But it is something that we're looking for in people. Are people actually investigating? Are people actually being mindful? Is there some growing sense of organic stillness or is the person still really agitated? Is that agitation, do they know times of stillness? Oh, these seven factors of awakening are ripening, these seven factors of epiphany. When these seven factors actually rise rise well and blend well together, that tends to be where we have, um, those are great conditions for liberating insight. So when you know that, you can see how to cultivate them, how to welcome them, help develop them, and then see if you can't get them to harmonize. It's like uh, if a guitar had seven strings instead of six, whatever instrument there is out there that has seven strings versus six when they're all tuned to each other, and you strum them, you get these beautiful chords. So when the heart and the mind have these factors strong and they're not in competition, but they're actually supporting each other, then they're strong. So we looked at three of them, tranquility, mindfulness, and investigation. If you have investigation without actual mindfulness, it tends to be intellectual and conceptual, because you're not actually seeing things clearly in the moment. Or you might be bringing your judgments to the moment, think you're being clear, but mindfulness is a little bit more um, suspending of previous information, a little bit closer to bear attention. If you don't have tranquility, there's chances are just too much motion to see clearly. So it's possible these three factors can rise and support each other with a basis in tranquility, steadying of intimacy, you can then ask these Dharma questions and see for yourself because you're in the stream of experience. Like going, sitting in front of the Eiffel Tower versus being busy in front of the Eiffel Tower. Still yourself in front of the Eiffel Tower, open your senses towards it, and then any question you want to ask, it's kind of self-evident because you're really there for it. So investigating these, uh, these Dharma processes with some basis of stillness, some basis of intimacy, and then remembering to ask questions in the middle of that experience to see if you can draw out through the experience, is this true or not? Can I see this? Can I see the arising and passing nature of experience, for example? That's an investigation of a dhamma, investigation of a law, a lawfulness of arising and passing. And there are seven of these factors, and so there are seven factors to develop and then see if... um, your binder or something on your lap is shining um, light. I get a little glare. It's just, the, it's just, it, it's the gilding of your book. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Resting in the sun, I was like, wow, it's hard actually. So there we go. That's perfect. Thank that's you. you. Yeah, it was really shiny gold, but I was trying to get oh. distracted. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> So there are seven factors, list of seven. Luckily, since the time of the Buddha, there are still only seven. So the list isn't going anywhere, getting to know them. There's mindfulness, and there's investigation of dhammas. So having a curious mind, but not curious, how does a solar, solar panel work? Or I wonder what was in dinner tonight? That's curiosity, but it's not a curiosity of a dhamma of suffering or not. Um, you want to be curious about the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom. That's the often the list of seven. That's the second one, investigation of Dhammas. The third one is called Virya in Pali, and it's um, to be uh, energetic or courageous. It has the same root as the the English word viral. So having a strength in you versus feeling uh, deflated or you know, you're you're too tired or you're only giving it half your heart. To be wholehearted in the endeavor is virya. That's the third factor. The fourth factor in the Pali is called piti. And piti in the mind is a delighted mind, a joyful mind. Virya is a courageous mind, piti is a delighted mind. They both bring energetic qualities to the mind you're feeling delighted i find that caffeine brings my pt on so whatever caffeine does for me i think it does for most people it might bring courage but (laughs) what i find is my mind gets agile and i get creative so pt can be a creative mind a joyful mind a delighted mind that's pt Those three factors, investigation, virya, courage, and PT, delight, um, are activities of the mind. The mind goes from being on the still side of the equation to actively engaged, courageously engaged, delightedly engaged, and investigating what's happening. The next three factors are considered the cooling factors, ones that settle the heart, settle the mind, settle the body. So the tranquility factor, the stillness factor, that's one of them. The samadhi factor, the one that has the heart and the mind be whole rather than scattered, giving uh, courage as a wholeheartedness in engagement, that it has samadhi is the heart is actually whole. Whole and powerful, you might say, samadhi and virya coming together. And the last factor is equanimity, upeka, Having a mind that's not reactive to the truths that it's in contact with, a mind that has suspended its preferences, can see clearly. And so when upeka is strong, when equanimity is strong, there's such a, a love and a, a willingness to see the truth that doesn't cause any reactivity. And so you can really hold things that otherwise would cause some type of jumpiness in you or a flinching. So be able to really hold the fact that all beings will die. And be able to hold that without it causing, I wish that weren't so. But actually with the equanimity, Mm -hmm. you can embrace the truth. And there's a steadiness, there's a very settling quality to not have preferences so you can see more clearly It's a beautiful, beautiful quality. When these seven factors strengthen in us and they will learn to harmonize, in those moments when they happen to arise organically, that tends to be when we can actually see very clearly the mind feels sober, alive, balanced, the ability gathered to see clearly. And that's usually what causes uh, the awakening the ability to see clearly. That's what undercuts the avijja, the ignorance, that allows you to see things clearly. So this group of seven, called the awakening factors or the factors of enlightenment, are at the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, this Sutta, they're also at the end of the mindfulness of breathing Sutta, which is its own Sutta, but two discourses on the development of mindfulness both head towards this uh, group of seven factors. So it's seen that you use mindfulness, wake up best you can, and at some point you can take interest in these seven factors and cultivate them. Not that you need another list to work with. (laughs) Not that you need yet another thing to do to feel busy about. At some point this might be interesting, and at some point I don't need to know this group of seven, I'm probably developing it anyhow. Mm. So I don't have to turn my attention to them, but I really want to see a rising and passing. You might notice that I want to see a rising and passing, but I'm just not tranquil enough. I want to see a rising and passing, but I still have these sticky preferences. So you might see that it behooves you. Another thing to behoove okay. you <laughs> is... Um, sometime to look, is my mind tranquil? Is it gathered? Is it non-reactive? Is there a delight or a heaviness of heart and mind? Does my mind feel light? Is it courageous enough to, to really stand in the face of truth? Non-reactive and courageous. Am I curious? Is my mind tranquil and sort of turned off? Or is it tranquil but still asking questions, so curious? How does this work? What's happening here? That's that other investigation of dhammas factor. Sometimes for short, they just call it investigation. But in the text, it's investigation of dhammas. And then the central factor is mindfulness. So this list is happening and it develops uh, just fine. So you don't actually have to work with it. And if you do work with it, it's more than just suspending hindrances forever. It's actually awakening positive qualities to assist your waking up process. And that's what the language in the sutta has. Uh, You can pick any one of them. If the joy awakening factor is present in them, they know there is the joy awakening factor in me. If the joy awakening factor is not present in them, they know there is no joy awakening factor in me. They know how the unarisen joy awakening factor can arise and how the arisen joy awakening factor can be perfected by development. So, one of the ways I was guiding you to uh, welcome the tranquility factor is a sense of ease and contentment. See, if you can be content in the present moment, I find when I'm content in the present moment, a lot of my seeking mind quiets down. So that's one of the ways that I develop tranquility, is I try to find contentment. Contentment also brings on equanimity. I'm less driven by my preferences. I'm just a little bit more still, so many of these factors, that's where I head. For that's how I've learned to work with my mind. I go for calming before investigating. If I start to investigate too quickly, my mind stays choppy. So I go I've learned over time established tranquility and well being before I start to investigate. Dhammas, for example. So I've learned that over time. Your mind might be different, so you'd learn over time what's the skillful way for you to develop these factors. The very basis of this teaching on dependent origination, which is one of the deeper teachings, one of the deeper and more full articulations of the waking up process and the process of getting caught, the very basis of it down at the very bottom is that word avijja, translated as ignorance and you can see the entirety of the buddha's teaching is to reduce is to get rid of that a in front of avijja. Mm. and what Vija is is clear seeing and the type of understanding that comes when you really see how something works not sure anything you were taught well mm. you could say that teaching experience was a welcoming of vidya, of seeing how something works. And what we want to see is the dharmas of suffering and of freedom. We want to see them clearly. And so we're just trying to break that A down, get it smaller, get the font grayer. <laughs> until finally there's just a tiny little A in front of the vidya. Just whisper it. I think when the Buddha went off to find his first students, when he said people with just a little dust in their eye, they had just a tiny little A in front of their vidya. And so just a little bit of pointing out, suddenly the puzzle pieces snapped together. Mm-hmm. When you feel like puzzle pieces are snapping together, it's a great enough experience unto itself, but if you happen to have some mindfulness left over besides feeling the aha you might say, wow, there are actually seven factors of awakening in me.
1: Huh.
0: That's what's supporting all this awakening. There's some tranquility. There's some courage. There's some stillness. There's some equanimity. There's investigation. You might find that when uh, Marlene has been leading the, the dyads, the inquiry, that these seven factors are supportive of good inquiry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Some stillness. Some collectedness dropping your preferences so that you can actually take somebody in whole, some delight, some courage to actually be honest, some query, some question, and then mindfulness, tracking that flow of experience. So these seven factors could be seen as the seven factors of really great interpersonal connection where you feel like you're discovering something with somebody, you're really fresh with them, seeing something, you're both discovering something new. Here are these seven factors of awakening. So in a moment we can uh, point or move to uh, any questions you have about this or your own reflections on it. This is one of the last sections and then it heads into the very last group is the Four Noble Truths. It's a fairly short section in this particular version of the Satipatthana Sutta. It's just the Four Noble Truths. In another version, you become mindful of all the eight factors of the eightfold path. And that ends up being, feeling a lot longer to kind of do every one of the factors. So you could do that too. But being mindful, this is dukkha. Here they know it as it really is. This is dukkha. They know it as it really is. This is the arising of dukkha. They know it as it really is. This is the cessation of dukkha. And they know it as it really is. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha, the way leading to the cessation of all those second arrows. And then the very last piece is the prediction, which is a lovely part. After all this work, going carefully through the entire sutta, There's this prediction, disciples, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now, which is full awakening, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. And that's a classic description of the stage of awakening before complete awakening, a non-returner let alone seven years, six years, not six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month. If anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven days, one or two fruits could be expected for them, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning, so it was said with reference to this, that it was said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha, discontent, the acquiring of the true method for the realization of nibbana, namely the four satipatthanas. This is what the Blessed One said. The disciples were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So he promises us, one of two fruits can be expected. If There's just a little clinging left over, non-returning. But if you really give it your all, full awakening, all the way to Nibbana, Nibbana or bust.
1: Non-returning, what is
0: that? In the stages of awakening, Um, you can have four great epiphanies. And each epiphany, when you actually see this experience of Nibbana, it's such a game changer to see it, that there are four times the game changes radically. And some people have such a radical Mm -hmm. epiphany that all four of them happen at once. But it's talked about that there are four game changing epiphanies. The first one makes you a stream entrant. The second one makes you a once-returner. You only have enough delusion for one more life. The third one makes you a non-returner, which means you don't have to start from scratch in another life and learn all the lessons. So you, only have, you don't return again to another start-over life. And then the last one is full arhanship or full awakening, where there's no confusion left in the mind. The four stages. So they're promising you, you either go to the third stage or the final stage. And we needed one more day of retreat. <laughs> I know. We got so close. What is what a tease. I was so I was right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's only a six day retreat, so <laughs> we avoid we avoid the contract. <laughs> Sorry. on like day three or four and they were all going to sign up for the retreat next year so they could ask (laughs) (laughs) they were impressed they said no retreat had ever done that (laughs) for all beings any questions reflections on the topic yeah um
1: Of the
0: Dhammas? That's the totalities of the dhamma in, Dhammas in this particular discourse. Mm-hmm. discourse. What's the difference between a discourse and a sutta? Same, same. Same thing, okay. Yeah. So, if the Dhammas are the laws, is there some compendium of them, or do you go through all the discourses and then... There are other, there are other laws, mm-hmm. and so um, that all experiences anicca. That's a, that's a dhamma, and that's woven through this one, through the arising and passing, that all our transient experiences are unsatisfying. That's a dhamma law of dukkha, one of the dhamma laws of dukkha. And you can, you can draw that out of the sutta, but it's not stated specifically, that all experiences that you'll have, none of them actually are of the nature of a lasting self. That's also a dhamma, and you can draw it out of here because of the five aggregates, but it's not stated explicitly. So there are other discourses where the Buddha is talking about um, other laws. You'll know this one law. um, uh, Hate can never be ended by hate. Hate can only be ended by non-hate. This is a law. So that is a dhamma. There's no way to actually put out the fires of hate with more hate, but many people are trying to put out hate. If I over-hate you, then we're heading in the right direction. And he says that actually has never ended hate, ever, not even once has that ever ended hate. The only ending of hate is non-hate. That's the only way to bring hate to an end. So that's another Dhamma that's not listed here in this one. Because here he's describing, (coughs) this is the straight path, but along the way, we discover many other things that are helpful. And because he ends with the Four Noble Truths and the Four Noble Truths contain everything, whatever hasn't been covered kind of gets caught up in everything by the Four Noble Truths. And how
1: many discourses are there?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say like 10,000. <laughs> there are hundreds and hundreds, and I know there are thousands but I don't know the upper number, but there are many. Some of them are very short. Some of them are, are very similar. And so they have different collections of them. Um, but there are many. If you, uh, Someone says if you took a Bible that's written on very thin paper, that the Pali Canon is about 40 Bibles thick. Mm-hmm. And that's all the collections of the Buddha's teachings would fill up. Forty Bibles worth of uh, teachings mm-hmm. wow. that are direct quotes, only kind of direct quotes and parables about what he did. Without the parables. No, that's with parables because some of them some of them are more parabolic, more parabolic. <laughs> So, there's no self except for these patterns. We want to be a little careful. We've actually all agreed in a previous teacher conference to never use the phrase no self mm. um, because there's very much a type of self, but there's no fixed self. Mm-hmm. And so, you're trying to use the words like non self, non lasting self. So, it's just, and we all do, and I'll do the, I'll do it. So I was just like, not that there's no self, but there's a non-lasting self.
1: So. Well, it's not the self I think of as myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm sort of starting to think of it as a collection of patterns, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so then I start to imagine all these other collections
0: of patterns that are streaming you mean the others (laughs) hello streaming of patterns next to me hello streaming of patterns next to me what a lovely set of patterns you have what a lovely set of patterns you have
1: Patterns, then we're creating other patterns um, in
0: our collectiveness. That's definitely true. And it seems to be the way that he taught Mm -hmm. was by whoever was asking questions, he turned the teachings to what was relevant to the people in front of him. Then he talked more universally. But I don't know of a lot of discourse where he would have talked about collective delusion. Um, And how he just, I think there's inferences where he talked about all beings have certain qualities. Or all beings are seeking happiness. But I don't think he did um, what we would call a type of like social analysis from his lens. Yet, <clears throat> societies are not made up of anything other than people. Mm-hmm. And those people have patterns, and if those patterns are fairly wakeful, then so tend to be the, the cultures they create. And if those societies are caught up in their own confusion, then the patterns they create tend to also be caught up in those confusions.
1: Daughter was like, "Where's the food? You know, I know where it is. Don't bother me. I got it. You know." And um, and it's just so I don't know because I feel like and I don't know if that's the self. Maybe that's just behaviors, but I do feel like there's there are kernels of who, whatever we are or our patterns are, whatever you want to call it, that do stay with us. Mm-hmm. That I like I see it in my kids that they're. I can trace it back to, like, the first hours of birth before
0: they do anything. There probably is no pattern that your kids have that if they didn't undertake a lot of training reinforcing couldn't have some impact. they could, Mm -hmm. you could make anybody, you know, a phenomenal pianist would depend upon some original talent. But you could train, everything is actually... um, can be reworked, but there are strong underlying tendencies to a lot of personalities. The, uh, the Burmese that I know would say, that's because of your past lives. Oh. And so what you're born with are your tendencies, your, which you could also say is your karma. Your karma and tendencies come close. My, um, my first niece was the first person in the next generation of my family and um, she, she had a rage in her. She wasn't in her mom's arms. No one else could console her. And it wasn't crying, it was really angry. And I remember she wanted nothing to do with me until she was four, no, she was two. And I had a babysitter once. I was like, I'll do it, but good Lord. <laughs> 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 <I'm> like, <"Whoosh!" laughs> Here we go, and I closed the door. And they drove away, and just like, yeah.
1: and I was
0: like, ah, oh, wow. Nothing makes a dent in this. But my sister loved her, and she loved her, and she loved her, and she was steady with her, and she loved her, and there just came a point where that rage, anger broke, and now she is one of the most loving people I know. And she's been that way since something broke in her. And I don't know how my sister knew how to do that, because she was a first-time mother, but she had no doubt that she could hold her through that anger and the anger would would breathe out its last scream. And then she took a turn and that turn happened right around that time that I had the babysitter and I was visiting a lot so she might have actually changed and they knew I would be okay before they left her with me. And I was like, I don't know the last time I was with her. remember I was pushing her on the swing as for a distraction, but she said, push me higher, push me higher. And I was like, "Did your mom push you this high? This is pretty high. <laughs> and she's like, no, but I love it. And I was like, okay, I got my in with you. I'm willing to take a little more risk here while they're away. Anything to like get in on the inside of this relationship. And she was cackling and laughing, and then we bonded. And she was like, I know you. You're the guy I go to for thrills. <laughs> That you, I understand you. Our relationship, we'll build from there forward. Like I finally, I finally get you. I was like, yeah, I finally get you. Okay, here we go. So, I was, I was afraid that the rage was very defining of her, that nothing could make a difference, and therefore it was made of an unchangeable quality in her. And she is really one of the most loving, caretaking beings on the planet. So. Not all trend, not all personality traits are hardwired, definitive, and then depending on the life experiences you have, certain qualities get enhanced, shaped, and whatnot. But I agree that all five of my sisters' kids had very clear personalities from the Mm get-go. Did we answer your question on on non-self? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if he jumped too quickly. No, but basically
1: he said no. Never really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> On large scale, but there were a few things. I mean, there was a, a time when two, um, two kings were going to go to war over water rights. And he heard news about this, and he actually was from a military family himself. And so he walked over, and he knew both, both kingdoms, and they respected him. And he said, uh, what is more valuable, the water in this river or the blood actually in your veins? Mm. And they said, well, the blood in our veins. And he said, why are you about to spill it
1: mm.
0: over this water? <clears throat> and there was some understanding that, there, that that whole kingdoms or communities could be swept up and that that was you know, a tragedy for that whole town or village or family to be swept up. But later forms of Buddhism expanded upon his teachings and had more of a collective model, had the Mahayana movement that came afterwards, um, thought more broadly. But it feels like the Theravadan teachings, these Pali canon teachings, seem to have been repeated skillful means for the individuals or the groups in front of him, that he didn't pontificate too broadly about larger views. They he tried to actually work quickly I and mean, work with the people in front of them, often to dispel views, not to replace views, but to get people out of their rigid views and opinions. And he didn't seem to give a more grand teaching, except in a few places like Dependent Origination, which is, talks about how you can go on for trillions of lives seeking happiness and be lost because the, the unexamined assumptions you don't even know that they're assumptions. It just makes sense that this earth is so much bigger than the sun, so the sun has to be the one moving. You can't even guess that that assumption is not an accurate one. So we keep wandering with these unexamined assumptions, and therefore we can't actually secure our happiness. So that's a broad theory, a large theory, but still, seems to be articulated in terms of individuals going through life after life.
1: Um, Did the Buddha talk about facilitating collective mindfulness? Hmm. And so that's kind of on my mind a lot. experiences of movers having, you know, in reflection afterwards, um, being very intimate in the stream together. And yeah. so, so I'm, I'm wondering, did the Buddha um, talk about this facilitation of ensemble
0: mindfulness? Are there any, any texts to look at? Not, not particularly that I know of. Um, he would talk about healthy sanghas, and he we'd talk about this is, a, this is a, I'm very pleased with this collection of people and how they're practicing. There's, there's harmony here. He once went to a monastery where there was a petty dispute, and they wouldn't put it down even when he came and said, this is not worth arguing over, but people were so locked up. And so he, this was a, a collective discord And then he went and later found another group that had really worked on harmony. More than individual practice, they had made sure that they were all practicing well together. And the way they talked about it is they shared their food whenever they went on alms walk. They came back and they made sure everybody um, was well fed. They would all sit together and the first person who couldn't sit comfortably would change posture and everybody else would change that posture. That one person lay down, they'd all lay down. Mm-hmm. And as soon as lying down wasn't working for somebody, that person would stand up, and they would all stand up. Mm-hmm. And then they'd all go walking. And they let the first person who couldn't endure the posture be indicative for the other people, well, it's time for us all to change postures, which is the very kind of group mind. Mm-hmm. It's one of the times he said, This is amazing, this is beautiful, this is a beautiful community to be that. Aware of each other, but besides that, not a lot more articulation than that that I know of. No, where that was. Um, there, the monk who is leading that group was called Anaruda. Ana A N A is R U D D A, and it might be R U D D H A. Anaruda, and it might be the Anaruda Sutta. But if you, the phrase that uh, that stands out from that sutta is, uh, we blend like um, milk and water. Mm-hmm. Two different liquids, but blended well, very beautifully together. Mm-hmm. So that's a few clues to where you might actually Google search and find Anuruddha, milk and water, mm-hmm. blending Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Green smoothies by Anoruta. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, first of all, thank you. I love the seven factors of awakening. Just,
0: Your new favorite. Uh, what? Your new, n- favorite. new favorite.
1: Yeah. And it, it seems like, other than them arising naturally through various practices, it does seem like setting an intention with them. Like woman do a vedic practice. It's yep. Really, just wonderful. And um, I never had anybody do a guided meditation with visualization. Mm-hmm. So it's Just felt it very, very heartwarming. Um,
0: so you can you can actually take the Brahma Vihara template and
1: mm-hmm. apply
0: it to any beautiful quality. So a supportive image that mm-hmm. resonates that moves the heart in that direction mm-hmm. in that direction and a simple phrase that you can repeat that also supports that quality of heart and mind. And so for me, the image of being on a boat, putting the oars inside, mm-hmm. it's like, don't even hold on to them. What we're actually gonna do is we're gonna put the oars in the boat, let them be, really learn to float. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's the tranquility. Now, where's the mindfulness? Well. You might as well enjoy it. It's beautiful. Rather than being tranquil and checked out, let's sit up in the boat and really enjoy it. Okay, great. Now can we learn as we go? Oh, I see where we are. I wonder where we are. Oh, look, there's this, there's that. And so there you have three of the awakening factors, the tranquility of being in the boat, the mindfulness of sitting up, and then actually looking to understand what you're seeing from that Basis of being relaxed in the boat. That imagery for me,
1: mm-hmm. when
0: I tune into it. I actually get those qualities. Start to. It's one of the ways I welcome the qualities. One of the ways you. Love I well. It's one of the ways that I invite or welcome those qualities.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then there are other ways you might, if you're trying to develop a certain quality. Yeah,
1: and I do have a question, which is sure. I mean, kind of the flip side of that, which is you mentioned a day or two ago. Um, you're surprised when you when you've experienced pain, it surprised you. It's been like just sort of shows up. And my question to you is how have you navigated it?
0: How have I navigated pain? Exactly. Uh, that that has changed so much over the years. Um, I think when in, before I had the chronic fatigue, I was cursed with. A lot of health, <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. enough health that I could cling to it and get away with it. Mm-hmm. So, one time I was practicing in a sangha up in Seattle, and I was like, "Yeah, it's so weird." After retreats, I just I keep forgetting it. I have to go back on retreat, and this one woman says, "You don't suffer enough. If you suffered enough, you would have to be mindful." I was a little like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> "But it's kind of true." I was getting away with it. I was like, "Yeah, you know." I don't have to be mindful because I'm healthy enough and I can kind of go about my day but it's not quite what I want but I get away with it so I get sloppy and there's no immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. And this woman had chronic pain she's like the feedback is so quick if I'm not actually present in my body. I was like I just don't have that feedback so I have to go on retreat to really wake me up. So long I mean I still had like a a negative response to pain. Pain was a bad thing. I'll endure it, but only so it will go away.
1: Mm.
0: And teachers were saying, yeah, you want to really accept it. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll accept it, so it will go away. (laughs) And then I got so much pain in Burma that I I really had to work with it. And I learned to get my attention out into something visual that was beautiful and cooling to my mind. And then it was almost like uh, climbing down into a cave. I would kind of rope my attention onto something beautiful and I would slowly back my way down into my body. And like, oh, that's too hot. And I'd pull myself out and look at the pain. I mean, look at the, the view out the window. Cool off and then I would ease myself down. And at certain times of the day, I could go way down into the body and feel it. And then I would start to get really resentful and overwhelmed and I'd pull myself back out and look out the window. And so I did that for months looking out the window, regrouping, how close into my body, titrating really, Mm -hmm. could I go in and actually feel the pain that was happening, then come back out. A great part of my practice was when I learned to actually be conscious while lying down. So the lying down posture where I didn't always fall asleep, Mm -hmm. that brought a lot more ease to my body and I could deal with the pain because I'd be lying down at least versus sitting up and getting tired of that much intensity with the pain. So it's kind of changed over the years. Thank you. Yeah, one last question we'll say. Can you uh, talk about the relationship between investigation of Dhammas and investigation of the three characteristics? How mm-hmm. they Yeah. So investigation of Dhammas that's that's the Broad umbrella. Anything that's a Dhamma, you, you can investigate it. And so in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's the fourth foundation where you're investigating, it's called the uh, Dhammas. So you're trying to investigate those Dhammas what causes pain, what doesn't cause pain, what causes suffering, what causes freedom. And it turns out the three characteristics, although they're not explicitly pulled in here, you probably could. Everything the Buddha said, you could probably put in the fourth foundation of mindfulness as an interesting place to investigate dhammas. And so the investigation factor, you develop tranquility, mindfulness, gatheredness, non-reactivity, some courage, some delight. And then you begin to um, investigate. Did lunch give me permanent satisfaction? (laughs) Felt it at the time. But an hour later, it didn't. Has lunch ever given me permanent satisfaction? No, it hasn't. Why do I keep assuming it's worth it? Let me try it again. So that's an investigation of dhammas. You're asking a dhamma question and seeing if reality gives you evidence one way or the other, versus having beliefs that are not investigated. So investigating the three characteristics is the same factor, the same dhamma factor um, of investigation of dhammas. Any law that you're investigating. That's where we want to steer our curious mind. Where is this suffering truly coming from? What's really supporting this sense of freedom? Founding everything like I like it. Oh, how free is that? Well, it feels free, but it could, it's actually kind of fragile. Because I have to have everything like I like it. Oh. What's it like to be free when you don't have everything like you like it? Well, I'm very free, but there's yeah, there's pain in my body and a little too hot in the room. But it's not catching me. So then you get to investigate the different types of freedom. Anyways, I'm kind of going on, but investigating the three characteristics is one of the dhammas you get to investigate. Does that help? So it's like. A- Yeah, it's one of the ways that you can investigate these three characteristics. Is there a stable, unchanging self? Where would I find it? How would I find it? I look here, I look there, I look here. Nothing I actually experience is an unchanging self. So where would an unchanging self be if not something I could actually feel? The totality of what I experience is full of changing experiences, so that's an investigation of non-self directly in your own heart, mind, body. Does that work? Yeah. So let's take our stretch break, our bio break for ten minutes. We'll be back at eight thirty. Thank you for listening.